Dear God, I can't think of any more wonderful word that would apply to us than that word forgiven. To recognize that because of what your son Jesus Christ did for us, that we can have that assurance of eternal life. You will declare over us that we are your forgiven ones, adopted into your family, children of the living God. And for that, we are so grateful. And we thank you, Lord, for the amazing cost you're willing to pay so that we might have this forgiveness. That Jesus Christ take the penalty for us so that you could offer this to us as a gift. So we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I love Baptism Sundays, I love uh, the stories of changed lives, but I also love just the public testimony of people's faith through baptism, that people are publicly identifying with Jesus Christ through the water of baptism, and I just love that. And and I love the fact that we can do it in a, a place like this. Whenever I think of baptism, I think of a couple of my uncles who were both in full-time ministry, and one of them almost lost a guy in a river. They were baptizing this guy, and he, they, they lowered him down, and his feet shot up because of the buoyancy. His feet shot up, and, uh, and the guy began to flail to try to catch his balance. He hit my uncle in the face. My uncle was so shocked by it, he dropped the guy, and the guy shot down the river. And um, I'm sure that that was a baptism that neither of them ever forgot. Thankfully, he wasn't hurt, but we can do this here. But I realize that the very, very practice of baptism and the way we do it might be unique to some of you. Uh, most of us here probably have come from a church tradition where you were baptized as an infant, what's called paedo-baptism. This is a different kind of baptism. This is what's called believer's baptism. It's a baptism that takes place after a person has put his or her trust in Jesus Christ. And the very mode in which we do it is illustrated by this. Because when a person become, or puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they're putting their trust in the one who died, who was buried, and then raised again. We believe that that's how you get right with God. We can't earn this, we can't earn forgiveness. It's something that God gives us as a gift when we put our trust in the one who took upon himself all of our sin on the cross. And it killed him. And he died and he was buried, but three days later he rose again from the dead. It demonstrates that the payment that he had made on our behalf was accepted by God the Father. And if we put our trust in him, then we have eternal life. And that's what they're saying here in these waters of baptism. I put my trust in a Savior who died and was buried. They go under the water. And then usually we bring them back up because Jesus rose again from the dead. And our faith and our hope, our trust is in a risen Savior. But I'd like this morning in just a few minutes here to, to read a story from the book of Acts and make some observations. There are certain things about this story that I just absolutely love. The story is found in Acts chapter 8 in verses 26 to 40. Let me read them. And it's a story of a baptism, a person who believed and then was baptized. We read, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. 
He'd come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who's the prophet saying this about, himself or another person? So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news or the gospel about Jesus beginning from that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer. But he went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I love this story for a variety of reasons. The first one is that I love the fact that God uses people to communicate the gospel message with other people. Now, as our story begins, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, spoke to Philip, who was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He was a deacon in that church, and the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, I want you to go down to, to the road that connects Jerusalem with Gaza. It's a desert road. It would have been a road, by the way, that would have gone right along the water, as you hear from the story here. And so Philip went down there, and when he got there, on that road, he saw that there was a, a caravan there. He saw a chariot, and it would have been an entourage, really. And, uh, and, the, and God said to him, I want you to go up to that chariot. And the guy that was in the chariot was a very impressive individual. Again, I think this would have been a very impressive entourage, because this guy was an important official. According to a Dr. Paul Hill, in modern terminology, the Ethiopian whom Philip encountered would perhaps be called the minister of finance. Likely, almost 100% likely, he was a Gentile, he was not a Jew, and we do not know how he came to believe in the God of Israel. But he had made the trip, and we know that the trip was about 200 miles away. It would have been a, a long trip. Now, 200 miles, if you jump in a car, is not far. But if it's an entourage, if you're in a chariot or something, it's going to take several days to get there. And so you realize this guy really was intent on worshiping the God of Israel. Some people, by the way, maybe connect this story with the Queen of Sheba from the Old Testament. The official that this guy was serving was a woman named Candace, and actually that wasn't her name, that was her title. It was a title just like Pharaoh or king. And so he was serving this woman, and, and on his way home after worshiping God, and, and Philip runs up to the chariot, which gets me to my first point, that God uses people to communicate the gospel message or to reach people for Christ. God uses other people to do it. What's interesting to me about the story is that the story involves an angel and it involves the Holy Spirit. 
And both of them could have been the ones that were involved in leading this official to Christ, but that's not what happened. They wanted, God wanted Philip to be the one to communicate the message. And I'm suggesting that this is God's way of doing it. That it was part of God's plan all along that when we find Jesus Christ and our lives are changed by him, that we be the ones to share this message with other people. We be the ones who lead other people to faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, this is what Jesus said we're supposed to do. After Jesus rose again from the dead, he was with a group of maybe 500 of his disciples on this mountain, and this would be the last time they'd see him because he was gonna ascend back into heaven, and Jesus' words to them were, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go, make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them then to obey everything I've commanded, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And you realize this was the commission that was given. I want to suggest here today, though, that it's such a privilege. Now, baptism, this is part of what it's about. These are ones who are going public with their faith, but it is such a privilege, such a joy to be involved in sharing Christ with someone. First time I had an opportunity to do this, it was actually kind of accidental, but I was only 13 or 14. And a friend of mine was one year younger than I was and I shared the gospel with him and he responded to the message. I was so filled with joy for about a week. I just, and I I was baffled by that because I'd never been so joyful and it never lasted so long. And I wondered what it was about and I I really think it was God's spirit just, just bringing a joy that comes from being part of sharing a message that has eternal implications. But the other thing that brought joy to me was the fact that this friend of mine was now an eternal friend. I knew I'd be seeing him in heaven again. And this is the promise God makes to all of us who put our trust in Jesus, the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him will not perish, in other words, suffer eternal ruin, but instead will have eternal life. That's the gift God gives to those who put their trust in Christ. And so I'm gonna see my friend throughout eternity. But God uses people. The second reason I love the story is that it illustrates that God cares about the spiritual welfare of each one of us. It demonstrates to me the value of one human soul. See, when I read this story, it seems to me that there was an awful lot of effort expended in going after this one guy. And you say, why would, you know, why just for one individual would would God go through all this effort? But I want to suggest here today that this is what God does for each of us. If you find Jesus Christ, it's because God and the Spirit of God has been luring you and wooing you to himself. There's an individual work that he's doing in your life. Oftentimes, it's through hard times. He brings us to this point where we recognize our need. And again, part of what baptism is about is you hear some of the stories and you find out different ones went through certain things. It brought them to this intersection where they had a decision to make. And am I gonna become a Christian? Am I gonna put my trust in Jesus Christ? But it's an individual thing, and I celebrate that. And I'm convinced God wants every single one of us to have eternal life. He wants every one of us to experience that relationship with him. In the New Testament, we read, it's not God's will that any will perish, but God's not gonna force any of us. He puts out that invitation. He woos us to himself, and we respond. 
So I love the fact that God uses people to reach people and he cares about the spiritual welfare of of each of us. The third reason I love this story is that it illustrates that the gospel has always been God's one and only plan to deliver us from the penalty of sin. This guy came to faith in Jesus Christ because he was reading a prophecy from the Old Testament. He was reading the Old Testament book of Isaiah and he read a prophecy that was written hundreds of years, over 700 years before Jesus was even born. And that prophecy is one of hundreds of prophecies. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, I've talked about this. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible and most of them, almost every single one of them is fulfilled in one individual man named Jesus. Even back in Genesis chapter three, you find the first prophecy that points to the coming of one who is gonna defeat sin and the devil once and for all. And so this demonstrates to me that there's a, there was a plan all along, and, and I'm convinced there is only one plan. That all along God had one plan in order to get us right with God. That God knew that every one of us would fall away or sin. We'd all sin. God knew that it was a, a problem we could not solve. We can't clean ourselves up enough to merit eternal life. And even before he created us, he determined his son would come into this world so that he might live a sinless life, so that he might be an appropriate sacrifice for us to realize that God charged the sin of the whole world against Jesus, or another way to put it more individually, every sin you've ever committed was charged against him. And it killed him. And he died and he was buried, but he rose again from the dead, demonstrating that the payment he had made on our behalf was accepted. And our response, the only response God is looking for is to put our trust in him. But I love what he was reading here. It's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. In addition to what we read in the story, let's read a little bit more of Isaiah 53. And I want you to notice that this, this could have been written in the New Testament. It's that relevant. Notice how it describes the suffering of Christ. Notice how it describes why. It had to do with our sin. Our brokenness. Beginning in verse three of Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow who knew what sickness was, he was like someone people turn away from. He was despised and we did not value him, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace, in other words, the punishment that would lead to us being at peace with God, was on him. And we're healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Could it get any clearer than that in terms of the good news, the message, the plan of God? But my point is that this has always been God's one and only plan. And this is why, and people don't like this, but this is why Jesus made the claim. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. On another occasion, he said, I'm the door to the sheepfold. If you want to be one of the sheep, how do you become one of the sheep? You have to go through the door. Jesus. And Paul put it, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name that's been given among men by which we must be saved. 
The word saved just means delivered from the penalty of our sin. It was Jesus alone, it's God's eternal plan, and it's all over the Bible because God did not want us to miss it. And so the story illustrates that God uses people. It illustrates that God cares about the spiritual welfare of each of us. It illustrates that the gospel has been God's one and only plan all along to deliver us from the penalty of our sin. And final reason I love the passage is that it illustrates a new believer will have a heart to obey God. We do not believe that baptism is the thing that saves a person. The people that are getting baptized are not being delivered from the penalty of their sin when they go under the water like it's washing away at that moment. It's faith in Christ, John 3.16, whoever believes in him. You know, for by grace you're saved through faith, the apostle Paul wrote. But it is a step of obedience. Now, the author of the book of Acts records this particular story. His name was Luke. He was a doctor. The author did not include everything that Philip said to this guy. But clearly, Philip said something that indicated that if he trusted Christ, that he needs to identify with Jesus through baptism. That he needs to take that step as an outward sign of his inward faith. And so as they're going along, they come to some water, and I love the enthusiasm of this guy found in Acts 8.36. It says, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? I just see the excitement he had to say, I want to do this. I, I believe, and I want to demonstrate. I want to show it through baptism. Then skipping to verse 38, we read, then he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went on his way rejoicing. Notice that it says they went down into the water, they came up out of the water. From my perspective, it clearly illustrates the mode of baptism. Again, this is believer's baptism. That they went down, it was a baptism by immersion. In fact, the very word baptize means to immerse. It means to completely submerge something. Dr. Polhill writes about this. He said, since the verb employed is baptizo, which always carries the idea of total submersion, there's no reason to assume that the eunuch was baptized in any other way than the consistent New Testament pattern of immersion. This is basically what the word means. And it carries with it this idea of being fully immersed into Jesus. You know, I'm fully identifying with Jesus Christ here. In biblical times, by the way, the word baptized wasn't a, a religious word. And some of you have hear, heard me talk about this before. They found an old Greek document that has a re recipe for making pickles. And it actually uses both the word sprinkling and uh, baptize in it. And the recipe goes something like this. Take the cucumbers, sprinkle them with water, in other words, wash them, then baptize them in the brine solution. Every time I think of that, I think holy pickles. I, I love pickles. But it, it's a good illustration because they were washed and then submerged. And that's what happens to us. We put our faith in Christ, our sins are washed away, and then we illustrate it through the water of baptized, baptism. Now, nowhere in the Bible are we told you have to be baptized immediately after you believe. And, and yet, every example in the New Testament, that's what happened. When the church was born, they believed and were baptized. This guy, he believed, he was baptized. Later on, some disciples of John the Baptist 
believed. They had not yet put their trust in Christ. They put their trust in Christ. They were baptized. It doesn't mean it has to be right away. And I love it that some are getting baptized later in life or whatever it is. But you do see that it was something that they felt was an important step of obedience. But let me wrap up by reiterating uh, a point I often make when I talk about baptism. I usually use the word point, P-O-I-N-T, to illustrate the significance of baptism. Let me quickly summarize what the word stands for. The P in point is it's a picture. It's a picture of a death and a resurrection. We've talked about that. O, it's an opportunity to obey Christ, which is what, again, this Ethiopian guy did. Third, it's an initiation into the church. In the book of Acts, we read they believed, they were baptized, and so many were added to the church. It was like their, almost like their membership application. You say, you're a believer, get baptized, then come join us. It was an initiation, and it's an illustration of our new life in Christ. Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 6. He, he, he shows the picture of baptism, and he says, you know what it really is? When you go under the water of baptism, you are saying, I died to what I was before Jesus. That part of me is buried. But when you come out of the water of baptism, you say, now I have a new life. Because if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so it's, it's an illustration of this new life. And then finally, it's a testimony of our faith, a public proclamation, as I mentioned earlier. Now, what do we hope you do with this? Well, I always hope that there'll be some. They will hear the stories and hear what I say or the music that we sing and their eyes will be open for the first time and they'll say yes to Jesus. Most people do that through a prayer. They acknowledge their sinful condition. I, I know I need a savior. I need a deliverer, someone to deliver me from the penalty of my sin and I can't do it. And then you reach out to Jesus. You say, I want to put my trust in you, the one who died and rose again for me. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again from the dead and I want to receive you or welcome you as my savior. And if you do that in prayer in the stillness of your own heart, you're born anew. For some of us here today, maybe this will be the spark that will encourage you to take that step of, of obedience in terms of baptism. To say, you know, I want to do that. I want to go public with my faith. And again, it doesn't matter if you have known Christ your whole life or just for a week or even this moment. It's an important step to take. And then finally, for all of us, it's my hope that we'll celebrate. Because every one of these is a representation of a life that has been changed by Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.